Welcome to Studying the Healing Potential of Psychedelics, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpenyi at a Bioneers conference with Ralph Metzner, Rick Doblin, and Valerie Mojego. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. In years past, this has been a little bit different because we have usually featured the ethnobotanic and um, plant substances as the feature of this presentation because of our green uh, overall our overarching themes. But, you know, it's about time that we also, again, because of, this, uh, of the use of technology, also address the synthetics. There are many synthetic things. You're sitting on them now. You're wearing a lot of them, and we can't... Uh, Without synthetics, we wouldn't be here. So, uh, you know, it's important to acknowledge that other end. And so we decided that we really wanted to feature the organization that has done absolutely the most to revitalize and to bring back the research into psychedelics. And that's MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And we have two representatives here, who I'll introduce in a minute, of that great organization. And so we're really honored that they would come and share their vital and important information about where research stands today on, on a lot of these substances. And of course, we also have to honor the great ancestors and the people who have really began this whole modern movement in, in the modern world. And so we also have someone I'll introduce in a moment who is one of the seminal figures in this field. And so it's a nice combination of the, the youthful, the not quite so youthful, and and, uh, and the great ancestor, the great youthful ancestor. So that, that was sort of the model going in here. So now I'm going to introduce our panelists. I'm going to do it in reverse order of how they'll be speaking. So I'll start with Rick Doblin. Now, Rick Doblin is the president and the founder of MAPS in, back in 1986. That's right, yeah. That's really all that needs to be said. If you know MAPS' work or if you don't, you should. It's really been an extraordinary organization at the forefront of really trying to get society to reawaken to the importance of these substances and to encourage serious research in every way. And without his efforts, there'd be nothing going on. We'd be still in the dark ages, but glimmers of hope are emerging, thanks to Rick. <laughs> Valerie Majeko has been working with MAP since the year 2000, and she's done a lot of work um, helping revitalized study into MDMA, ecstasy, um, and into other substances. And also she's done something I find very interesting, which is she's trained hundreds of people around the world to do emergency psychedelic interventions for people who have bad experiences at big events and other places. And that's vitally important work because after all, these are very serious substances and like any serious tool, there are risks inherent in this. I don't want you to get the impression we're treating this lightly and this is we're advocating massive guzzling of, of psychedelics for all and sundry people. This is a, we are, we are sober people here, you know, uh, you know. Um, so, uh, so Valerie will be doing, showing some of her work. And finally, it's a great honor to have Ralph Metzner here, who for those of you who don't know your history, um, was one of the triumvirate back at Harvard back in the day with Tim Leary and, and Ram Dass, before he was called Ram Dass, when he was still Richard Alpert. And, uh, um, and he has really been a pioneer in this field, and he's written some of the seminal books. He was a co-author of The Psychedelic Experience, one of the great classics, and has written countless books since then. Green Psychology, one of my favorites, The Expansion of Consciousness, and The Roots of War and Domination. And um, he is the founder of the Green Earth Foundation. So I think we're going to start with Ralph because he has earned the right to lead. <laughs> mm. 
well, thank you for coming, and um, I look forward to a discussion with you, and I appreciate the uh, pioneers for allowing a context for these, uh, for, the, for a discussion of these substances, and um, uh, which are still surrounded with controversy and sensationalism and misunderstanding and ignorance. And uh, I want to address that. I want to address the larger context. Um, as you know, I don't need to tell you, we're, we're living in a tumultuous time of transition. So what does it mean that these substances exist? And to me, the plant and drug relationship is very analogous to the relationship that we human beings have to our ancestors. All the drugs that we use, whether psychedelic or any other kind of drugs, are basically descended from, even if they're manufactured in a laboratory, they're descended genetically from um, drugs or plants or fungi or minerals sometimes. So um, um, it's the, the, the nature and the quality of the drug that determines um, you know, our interaction with it. And uh, there is something very peculiar about the drug plant substances that we're talking about here that are called variously psychedelic. I like the old term consciousness expanding that we used. And uh, they affect the mind, they affect the way you look at things, unlike any other drug, um, which affects the heart, the stomach, the liver, or whatever, um, or even psychiatric drugs that raise your mood or lower, you know, calm your mood. Uh, these are they just change the way you look at things. So you look at the world, you look at yourself, your understanding of the world. So they have to be treated completely differently. And this is one of the first points I want to address. That, uh, we live in an uh, American society has a drug prohibition, just like we had alcohol prohibition in the 20s and 30s. It's also sometimes called recently the drug war. And what is the drug war and what is drug prohibition? First of all, let me point out one thing that's interesting in terms of the, the present situation. The alcohol prohibition ended in 1935 in the midst of the Depression. What was the impulse for it ending? It wasn't science and it wasn't, uh, it was the economic depression that actually led to the repeal of prohibition because all of a sudden people realized why should we get let alcohol and his gangsters take in all this hundreds of millions of dollars from illegal alcohol sales when this could be, you know, we could be making that. In other words, we, the corporations. And so pretty soon uh, the barrels rolled. But it's a very interesting thing that uh, marijuana prohibition and uh, psychedelic drugs, which really are a minor footnote in, in the social, legal, political context of, this, of the drug war and drug prohibition, the psychedelic drugs are less than 1%. They account for nothing. They're sort of caught up in the machinery, the machinery of heroin, cocaine, marijuana. And what is that machinery? Um, people call it a war, a war on drugs. You know, it's very strange. Having been in this field uh, for a, a long time, I've actually had, as a therapist, twice now in my life, professional life, had the experience of having the kind of therapy that I do become illegal. So I became a criminal if I would continue doing it. Not because anybody was harmed or complained or anything like that, but because a decision was made once in the 60s with LSD and then later on in the 80s with MDMA, the same cycle. A substance was found that was useful in therapy, and then it interested people who didn't want to have therapy but wanted to have the experience, and then it was made illegal. <laughs> uh, and uh, it went underground. 
and uh, was manufactured illegally, and large numbers of money were made, or you know, some was made, and, uh, uh, but the people who couldn't, uh, couldn't continue to doing uh, research with it. And so what is that? And so I thought a lot about that. And I, and I also wondered about what is this war on drugs really about? Because you've seen these commercials, this is your brain on drugs, you know, it looks like fried eggs. It doesn't really, the people who are using the drugs, it doesn't bother them at all. They know it's a lie, they know it's not true. So they don't pay any attention. That was already known in the 60s. People said, oh, no, this is ridiculous. They're not paying any attention to that. So it must be something else. There's something else maintaining the system. What is its function? And you know what? I never really understood it until they started the war on terror. What's the function of the war on terror? The function is to install fear. It's not to combat terror. You don't combat terrorists. First of all, terror is an abstraction. It's like Gore Vidal said, it's like having a war on dandruff. It's an abstraction, you know? It's actually a cover to uh, wage war against a certain defined groups of people that you declare to be terrorists. And in the case of uh, the war on drugs against certain defined groups of people that you declare to be drug users who you put in jail. So it's part of actually both wars are part of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, which could better be called the military-industrial prison complex. And it is a fascist control system that's oriented towards imperialism externally, domination on the planet. I wrote my book on roots of war and domination about that. It's an imperialist system wanting to impose a certain kind of political economy on the rest of the world. So the nation state, imperialist nation state, and fascist inside. What is fascism? Mussolini actually said fascism should be called corporatism. It's an unholy alliance between the, uh, the corporate sector, the industrial corporate sector, the military, and the government. They become one. The war on drugs and the war on terror, the, war, the legislation uh, on, on drug prohibition is not science-based. All the drugs that are listed in Schedule 1, this is not a pharmacological category or a chemical category. This is a political category. So its function is to install fear to produce these laws. The legislation is not addressed to the children who take drugs, to the young people who take drugs. It's addressed to the elders, to the mothers and the fathers and the grandparents and the relatives who don't take drugs, who want to protect their children, which is a legitimate interest. That's why when laws were passed against MDMA, uh, testimony in Congress didn't include any doctors. <laughs> it included police people. What do they know about drugs? Uh, stories would be put out and, you know, this produces all these effects and nobody was there to do any counter-arguments and then the senators, uh, the Congress people say, well, yes, that sounds terrible, let's triple the sentences or that and, you know, make that really illegal. So the function is to, and it's a part of the control, the fa a fascist system, corporate military com fascist system wants to exert more and more control and uniformity. And What's underlie that? Why does it want to do that? So the rationale is we've got to, you know, the, have these drug users and they have to be treated. Well, the drug war does not reduce, actually, it does not actually reduce drug use. And it doesn't help the people who are uh, addicted to drugs who need treatment. It doesn't either of those. Numerous studies have shown that. So it must have some other function. So socially, its function is to instill stall fear and underlying reason is about money. 
It's been estimated by the research by people like Peter Dale Scott and others that the, uh, the drug trade globally accounts for about $500 billion every year. It's a kind of a huge multinational slush fund that are used by uh, secret groups, controlling groups, intelligence, military, underhanded corporate groups that are multinational that far exceeds other national boundaries and state power, as do so many of the multinational corporations. So I'll just give you a little formula that somebody came up with that kind of explains this. Like you think of a triangle, three points of a triangle, guns, weapons in general, uh, oil, and drugs, G-O-D. You know? That's the triangle of power. And the drugs, drugs funds, uh, heroin trade fun funded the secret wars in Indochina. The cocaine trade funds the secret wars in, in Latin America, both on the side of the rebels and on the side of the, of the controllers and the, uh, the government and the right-wing military. They're all funded on drugs, on the cocaine trade, which goes into the noses, up the noses of Americans and other users worldwide. So I want to say something about uh, the role of psychedelics in this. When I was at a conference in Basel earlier this year, there was um, an American, a young man, American man, Casey Hardison, who's in a jail in the United Kingdom for manufacture in England of uh, LSD, MDMA, DMT, a few other psychoactive drugs like that. He decided that he was going to appeal his conviction. He's already in jail, been sentenced on the grounds that his crime did not harm anybody. These are victimless crimes. To possess LSD or even to distribute LSD is a victimless crime. People are not making anybody take LSD, they're just making it available. It's an entrepreneurial crime if you want to take it that way. So, of course he doesn't have a chance of a snowball in hell of getting that appeal heard by the House of Lords in England. But he's sent a tape was heard by 2,000 people at this conference in which he explained his situation. This did a very interesting thing to people. Supposing somebody takes LSD or some other consciousness-expanding drug, has the most profound, life-changing, spiritual, cosmic consciousness experience of their life, and then you found out that the person who supplied the medicine which you just took is sitting in jail for the rest of his life. That would do a very interesting thing to your head, don't you think? So I think this is why I want to talk about this and why I want, uh, want to invite you all to think about it, what it really means for us and what do we have to do. So here's what I um, would like to say, my, my brief suggestions about uh, the actions that, were, actions that are called for on the part of all of us. I think we need to get beyond the, the idea of legalize or prohibit, you know, but that's false dichotomy. Uh, the key is regulation to find the appropriate social regulatory framework. But the, uh, the, the use and the possession of drugs, any kind of drugs, needs to be taken out of law enforcement and put into the area of public health, which is where it belongs. It's not a law enforcement issue, it's a public health issue. Uh, England used to have a system earlier on in the first half of the 20th century where an addict could register and then we could get their supply 
uh, non-toxic drug supply of heroin or whatever it is that they needed at a government uh, health center, and they could also get treatment. There's no reason, it's not difficult to set up such a system. It does not lead to necessarily you know, widespread use of drugs. Uh, as long as you have some system in place that, uh, that allows for uh, the, uh, the regulation. So I'm for regulation, and I'm actually for the more regulation and some drugs that are, in my opinion, and I, Rick agrees with me, I just found out, for example, alcohol, I think, should be regulated more. I think a licensing model that people, just like you have to get a driver's license before you can get in a car. So these are tools. You should be asked to take a, uh, an educational course that shows the consequences of alcohol use, makes you aware of the illegalities of it, and uh, it shows that you can be a responsible user of alcohol, just like you can be a responsible user of any other thing. So uh, you don't need to pass laws against drugs. You, can, you already have laws on the books against illegal behavior using drugs, whether it's drunk driving or whether it's giving alcohol or tobacco to underage people or giving drugs to people without their consent. Uh, the golden rule applies in this situation just like in any other situation. And to, to have a million and a half people who are in the United States imprisoned simply for possession of marijuana is a, is a stupendous waste of human resources. And uh, these people could be out there and contributing to society. Uh, lastly, I just want to mention the three main areas of therapy, and our, my colleagues here will talk more about them. I think in the, the use of consciousness-expanding drugs and the treatment of addiction is a natural. But addictions are consciousness-contracting and fixating. And uh, LSD was used in the treatment of alcoholism. Uh, addiction programs that use ayahuasca uh, have already been tried in Holland, and in addiction programs uh, for cocaine being tried in, in South America, Colombia, and Peru. Consciousness expand, ibogaine has been used. Uh, consciousness expansion gives you more choices, allows you to have insight. Uh, I think, secondly, the treatment of trauma, PTSD. You've got 70,000, 80,000 PTSD veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan war. MDMA is the f most phenomenal, uh, powerful treatment. Uh, Valerie is going to talk more about that for MDMA. And finally, end of life. I think the most, for me, to perhaps the most significant area of uh, possibility of application of consciousness expanding substances and helping people prepare for dying, of which there's a tremendous amount of ignorance, and most of us are uh, totally unprepared for dying, have no conception. And if there's one thing that I think can be guaranteed for anyone who has a, uh, a psychedelic experience is to realize that uh, they are not identified with their body and that consciousness or the soul or the psyche exists in a much wider range of possibilities and the spiritual essence that was within all life, including their own human life. So thanks very much. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for having us here from MAPS. We're really happy to be a part of Bioneers um, and really just excited to be here. So now that you've got the big picture from Ralph, I want to focus in and tell you a little personal story about how these medicines can be healing. So, but first I want to find out who here has heard about MAPS? Okay. So for those of you who haven't, MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And my job is to make sure that all of our studies around the world are being conducted under the FDA guidelines for pharmaceutical research. 
So what I'd like to talk to you today about is a story from one of the people that was treated in our trial and talk to you a little more about um, what it means to do one of these studies and what the implications are of this research. Fourteen years ago, Donna Kilgore was at home in her house alone. A stranger came to the door. He knocked and asked her if her husband was home. She answered, but she hesitated just a little bit too much. The stranger bust into her house and he had a gun and she was raped that night. Donna screamed until the police came to the door. She survived the encounter and she tried not to make the mistake of blaming herself. But she lost interest in all of her hobbies, she stopped playing tennis, and she started having nightmares. Nightmares about tornadoes, hurricanes, nightmares about bears eating people. Donna remarried, she had more kids, but the feeling that things weren't quite real just kept sticking with her. She felt like she was a foreign exchange student living with someone else's family. The details may be different, but the stories are all too common in our society. Violent crimes, rape, assault, leaving people with these symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. At the, in the best case, mildly disturbed, and in the worst case, completely unfunctional. Donna's symptoms progressed. She was often irritable. She had extreme anger for no reason. She had flashbacks, panic attacks, fainting spells, and migraine headaches. She was diagnosed with PTSD, and she was prescribed one antidepressant after another. Donna tried dozens of different types of therapy and dozens of different therapists, and none of it was working. She was at her wit's end, and her symptoms, the very symptoms that she was trying to treat, severe anxiety, lack of trust in strangers, fear and an inability to think about the trauma were the very things that were preventing her from getting better. Now, who here by a show of hands knows someone who has had PTSD? It's, it's a lot of us. Now, who here knows someone who's ever fully recovered from their PTSD? That's a lot less. The statistics say that at least one-third of people never fully recover from, from this illness, and Donna was definitely one of those people. She was at her wit's end, and she was ready to either go sit on top of a mountain or jump off of a cliff when her therapist recommended she take part in our flagship study of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder in Charleston, South Carolina. This study was specifically for people who had tried different kinds of treatment and failed, like Donna. Um, it was randomized, double-blind, and placebo-controlled, and it was completely legal. Um, we got all of the institutional review board approvals that were necessary. And the unique thing about this study was that it was actually done under the Food and Drug Administration as a pharmaceutical research trial. In this therapy, the person was administered MDMA two times in the course of several months of therapy with a male-female co-therapist team. Now, why did this, why try this instead of other treatments? I think that it's best explained by this quote by Laura Huxley, the late wife of the writer Aldous Huxley. She says that psychedelics are extraordinary tools when used with psychotherapy because in one day you can let go of so much and have insight into so much, sometimes more than in a year of traditional psychotherapy. 
Now, why can it work so much better? Why can you get so much in one day of therapy as you can in one year of traditional therapy? The reason why is because MDMA can break through these roadblocks to treatment with the specific effects of the drugs. The unique thing about MDMA is, as a medicine is that there are no other medicines that are actually used in conjunction with therapy to make the therapy work better. MDMA is. Other medications, antidepressants, tranquilizers, are used to block out, to numb, to forget. MDMA actually helps the patient to confront the very thing that's causing the symptoms. Some of the things it can do is it can decrease defensiveness, give you more empathy and emotional closeness, and reduce fear associated with these emotionally upsetting thoughts. And there's often a really strong spiritual component as well. And perhaps most of all important is that unlike normal antidepressants, MDMA only needs to be administered once, not every day, maybe three times at the most. So that's why it's not very profitable to normal pharmaceutical companies. And that's where MAPS with the nonprofit model comes in. So once Donna contacted Michael and Annie and the, the researchers, they began the process of creating a safe space. And this is the preparation phase of the type of therapy. So this not only means making a safe physical space that's comfortable, a private office on a quiet street, but also creating a safe psychological space. And that begins with the contract. So they might make sure that Donna knows that after the session, she's going to spend the night. She's going to get a ride home from someone else. There won't be any physical contact unless she specifically says it's okay. And perhaps most importantly, she needs to trust the therapist that if she's going to do something that's dangerous to herself or someone else, they're going to be able to step in and stop her from doing that. So after two or three of these introductory sessions, Donna moves on and does the actual MDMA-assisted therapy session. And the therapist's role is mainly as a guide and a support, but they don't really need to do that much because they really need to sit back and let the drug do its work. Um, they often encourage the participant to go inward with blindfolds and headphones and really let the person's inner experience be the guide. Some things that people might experience during the therapy session are a physical release of the emotional trauma. Um, they might experience an enhanced empathy with others. Um, one of the ways that the therapists say they can always tell if someone got MDMA instead of placebo is that the client will actually ask them, how are you doing? Because that normally never happens. So that's a dead giveaway. I see that we all have a little knowledge of this topic already. So um, another thing that can happen is that very strong emotions can come up. And in these people with PTSD, they may not have felt these kind of emotions in a very long time. Joy, exhilaration, self-affirmation, resolution. These are all things that can come up during the session. And another thing that's really important for the therapy is that there's an increased access to the memories and the thoughts and the feelings, and memories and thoughts and feelings in general. And for many of these people, they're blocking out and they, they're not even able to remember some of these things, let alone verbalize them. I have a little quote here from one of Donna's sessions. She says, it's not just about the rape. It's not just about any one thing. It's so many different things. All I can remember feeling as far as I can remember is fear. Heart stopping, gut dropping fear. 
I've kept all of this inside for so long, and it feels so heavy. These emotions, it's like I've been trained this way, to be seen and not heard. So after the therapy sessions, the next important part is the integration phase, where all of these lessons are brought back into the person's normal life. So the therapists work to first establish what we call a safety net. So they meet with the patient the next morning after the session and talk about it, and then they talk on the phone every day for a week about anything that's come up. And the reason for this is because when working with these kind of tools, there's an opening that takes place. And that opening isn't just during that eight hours of the therapy session, but it can last days or weeks or maybe even months as these paradigm shifts change in the person replacing completely new beliefs from the old ones. After her treatment, Donna said, to me the biggest breakthrough, it meant the world to me to be able to look at the fear, to look at the shame. I didn't know I was ashamed. It was like I'd been wearing the scarlet letter. It was so heavy. When I got out of that session, I felt 100 pounds lighter. The drug gave me the ability not to fear fear. Donna remained symptom-free for a year after treatment. But I want to emphasize that this is not a magic bullet in any way. The results are coming out from this study in November with a paper that's going to be published. Um, from looking through the data, what I can tell you now is that Donna's story was not unique. A lot of people actually were significantly helped by this treatment. Um, a year after treatment, Donna did get some increased stressors in her life. She got a new job in a bad part of town, and she, some of her symptoms came back. Um, would she benefit from another treatment a year later? She might, but unfortunately she can't have one because it's not legal right now. But Donna, despite having some of her symptoms come back, she has been so moved and so transformed by this treatment that she's actually come forward and is talking to the press. And we have a really amazing article at the MAPS booth in the tent next door that I recommend checking out that she was interviewed in the Washington Post magazine. So tying this all back together, we have these global social problems, war, violence, intolerance, hate not just of each other but of the world. And these are massively affecting us on a personal scale with illnesses like PTSD. Antidepressants are a band-aid, really. They're not confronting what is underneath, what's causing the symptoms, and what's causing us not just to feel bad but to do these bad things. This is the mission statement of Bioneers, that we're inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations, and promoting practical environmental solutions and innovative social strategies for restoring Earth's imperiled ecosystems and healing our human communities. Now, when I was in school in CIS, one of my professors, Fernando, used to always say to us, before we can heal the world, we need to heal ourselves. And I think that what I took that to mean is that we need to start small and heal these inner wounds, not just for ourselves, but for others, then we can really trust that we are working towards the change that will really make a difference in the world. And MDMA is a product of this culture, of this very culture that has all these problems. But I believe that it's here for a reason, and whether it's used for PTSD or it's prescribed off-label for spiritual growth, that it really has the potential to help us heal ourselves, our community, and the world. And I want to leave you now just with a quote from our ally, Andrew Weil. Drugs don't have spiritual potential. Human beings have spiritual potential. 
And it may be that we need techniques to move us in that direction. And the use of psychoactive drugs clearly is one path that has helped many people. Thank you. I'd like to um, first off thanks to JP for um, inviting us to have this forum here. As he noted, it, it can be a little bit controversial talking so explicitly about psychedelics. And so it takes a bit of courage to have us here on the program. And um, it's, a, it's a particular pleasure for me to um, be on the program with Ralph as well because the name MAPS uh, came from his book, Maps of Consciousness. And I really like that idea that what we need is tools to help us understand the landscape of the unconscious and that each person has to take the map and go on their own journey, but that we can help with providing some general bits of information and some guidelines so that we're not the destination, we're the map. We're not the guide, we're the sitter. We're helping in the emergence of this inner growth, this inner awareness. And so it, it, it's just a, a nod to Ralph and to what came before and inspired us to, to do this, what we're doing, our work today. Now, just the other day, I read an article in the New York Times, and it was about the financial crisis. And, and I want to read just a little bit of it uh, to you today, because while MAPS is focused on psychedelic psychotherapy in the individuals, uh, particularly people with post-traumatic stress disorder, or people with uh, anxiety associated with uh, end-of-life issues. I, I want to give a sense as to how the work in individuals can play into this larger social change that we're all seeking. So there was a, a great book written in um, 1841 called The Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And it talks a lot about financial balloons and booms and busts and it starts, quote, money has often been a cause of the delusion of multitudes. Sober nations have all at once become desperate gamblers and risked almost their existence upon the turn of a piece of paper. To trace the history of the most prominent of these delusions is the object of the present pages. And here, here's the quote that is really more the most meaningful quote. It says, men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. I think that means it's incumbent upon each of us to work on, as, as Valerie was saying too, and Ralph, that we have to work, we're our own instrument, that working on individuals can collectively over time with enough individuals have an impact on society as a whole. And that we have to stand alone sometimes against the madness of the crowd, against the prohibition, against the various wars of domination. And that we can do that, though, and that it's a major victory to work on healing on a single person. I think, for me, the, the political and the psychedelic came together, in my understanding, the most in terms of the Good Friday experiment. So I'm just, how many people have heard of the Good Friday experiment? Okay, only a very few, actually. So this was one of the uh, proudest moments of, of Tim and Ramdas and Ralph and Walter Pankey at Harvard. This is, I think, the classic scientific research on psychedelics. And what it did was it took place in 1962. 
And there was a lot of talk from Aldous Huxley, from others, about the spiritual potential of psychedelics. I think one of the advantages of our era is the scientific method. And I think that we can really go far with the blending of science and spirituality. And religion without science is very dangerous. Science without religion and spirituality is also very dangerous. The Good Friday experiment was an attempt to try to understand in a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, could psychedelic drugs help people have a religious experience? It took 20 divinity students into church on Good Friday. And to show you how non-controversial psychedelics used to be and how we hope they'll be again one day, the minister who was giving this sermon on Good Friday was Martin Luther King's mentor, Reverend Howard Thurman. Martin Luther King did his PhD at Boston University. So this took place at Boston University Chapel on Good Friday. And as it turned out, it was a three and a half hour service. 20 of the people were involved in it. Nine out of the 20 had what they considered to be a mystical experience, according to this questionnaire that took um, over a year to develop. And what it did was it isolated out the core spiritual experience from the different religious traditions. So it didn't have any kind of link to Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or anything like that. It was more the sense of unity, the sense of transcendence of time and space, the sense of being in the presence of something sacred. It had the core elements of a spiritual sense of connection. And nine out of the 20 people had it, and eight out of those nine had the psilocybin, one had the placebo. So this study basically demonstrated in a scientific context that psychedelics can have a promoting aspect to religious mystical experience. This was, experiment was repeated at Johns Hopkins, not in a group setting, but with individuals. And, and many of you may have heard about that. It was, got a lot of media attention, and it said that it also worked in this individual context. But what I wanted to do in the middle 80s, when psychedelic research was still shut down, was to track these people and see what they thought about their experiences over time. Because the real test in all the different religions is called the fruits test. If a mystical experience is genuine, it will have fruits in one's life. If it doesn't have these fruits, then it wasn't a genuine mystical experience. And it's called, it's independent of the cause. There are multiple different, people can have mystical experiences in the middle of an accident, in the middle of war, in the middle of all sorts of practices. So it's independent of the cause. It focuses on the experience and the fruits. And when I was able to um, find these people, I became a little bit of a junior detective, and I ran all over the country. It took me about four years, and I identified 19 out of the 20. And what I was able to learn is, I think, the, the heart of the problems uh, and the backlash from the 60s, because it turned out that these people who had the psilocybin felt that they did have a genuine mystical experience. Many of these people were still ministers. And they felt that their experiences had opened the door to other mystical experiences, but at the same time had promoted a certain engagement in the struggles of the day, so that they participated in the civil rights movement, in the anti-war movement, in the environmental movement, in the women's rights movement, so that when we think about the war on drugs, it's often portrayed as what happens to protect us from when psychedelics and drugs go wrong. And I think what happened here is that there's a challenge when psychedelics go right, is that we want to make a better world for all of us. And we're not so much focused on the afterlife, we're focused on the present. 
psychedelics bring one into the present. And at the time, in the 60s, this clash was portrayed as culture-counterculture clash. And I think that, in a way, was un extremely unfortunate because when, when these dichotomies are set up, the dominant culture has the power and just managed to smash things. And at the same time, managed to smash things, not just in the U.S., but through the global export of the war on drugs, one of our more successful exports, which will hopefully be discredited very soon, that there's been this worldwide prohibition on research with psychedelics and with marijuana, that there is this attempt to demonize drug users and the drugs that they use and the propaganda campaigns that justify the incredible penalties that people go through require kind of a simple message. And usually we hear a lot, psychedelic research sends the wrong message and kids need to be told that they should never do these drugs. So that our view of course is that the right message is the honest message and that we need to help people deal with it. What we need to do now is to, to really move instead of away, there is no longer an away, there is no culture counterculture, there is no island. Aldous Huxley wrote so well about it in his book Island. We, can, we cannot, because of global warming, because of nuclear weapons, because of uh, the globalism, th there's really no way anymore. So we have to go into the heart of the culture. So in my own little journey, I be was um, a draft resistor for the Vietnam War, prepared to go to jail. Fortunately, I didn't have to, but I went from perceiving myself as a, a criminal who would be an underground psychedelic therapist in order to bring out these uh, aspects of consciousness and healing to eventually going to Harvard to the Kennedy School of Government and getting a master's and PhD from there and balancing that with training with Stan Groff in holotropic breathwork. So that I think we need to bring psychedelics to the heart of the culture. And if you look at where we're at now, 40 years later, since the 60s, it used to be that if you practiced yoga, I mean, you were a nut. Now you go to YMCA and they offer yoga. I mean, we, we've sort of taken death out of the shadows. My aunt died when I was four years old. She was 21, died of cancer. And I found out later that my grandparents didn't even tell her she had cancer and didn't even tell her she was dying, that that was something that, that was too hot to talk about. So now we have hospice centers. We have taken death out of the shadows. My um, father is a pediatrician, and when I was born, he wasn't even allowed into the delivery room. He's a pediatrician, and men were like, the fathers were banished from the delivery room. So we've taken birth, we've taken death, we've taken spirituality, yoga. We've kind of gone a great ways over these last 40 years in terms of preparing our culture. So now I think we are primed for the reemergence of psychedelics in a way that our society can handle. And I think Ralph pointed the way in the, talking about working with people that are dying and also PTSD. So we've uh, done a lot of uh, thinking about how do we develop psychedelics into realms of social acceptability. One route is through spirituality. The Native American church has legalized the use of peyote, but in an incredibly racist situation, the Supreme Court has said that you have to be 25% Indian in order to participate in this religion so that we are now institutionalizing racism in terms of religion. But that's to keep it from spreading. The ayahuasca church, Uniao de Vegetal, has won a case in the Supreme Court. But that's very limited to this group of about 160 people. So trying to promote religious use, personal growth, is going to be very difficult. 
because it's so close to legalization. We all should have the right, without an intervening religion, to explore our own spirituality. So I think eventually we will have that, but trying to make that as the opening wedge, it's, it's very difficult. Similarly, trying to just legalize for non-medical purposes is, is also very, very difficult. Um, to give you an example, I, I was just in Ireland at Trinity College and debating about drug legalization just a week and a half ago. And the student that presented a paper on prohibition and I, we went out to um, bars dancing and talking late into the night. And he shared this story with me about how a group of his friends went off to do LSD. This was just a couple weeks before. And he didn't go with them. And one friend came back and said that, that it was the most important experience of his life, that he had this very opening experience, very deeply emotional, and that it changed his way of thinking. And he, the, the fellow who was in favor of prohibition said that this really made him think a lot until a couple days after that, he heard a story about somebody else who was at the party who ended up leaving on their own. People weren't really watching out for each other. They weren't properly really trained in how to handle this. And the fellow ended up walking in front of a truck and getting killed. So from the same party, one person has this extraordinary experience with LSD and the other person ends up dead. So we can understand why parents are scared and why we need proper education. But that these are tools have incredible potential either way. So we have to respond to the risks and we have to try to find a way to protect the benefits. And so when we're dealing with a scared culture, people are more scared of dying than they are of drugs. So that's where this work with uh, people who are dying comes in. And we've been able to sort of bring about the psychedelic renaissance in that we've started um, psychedelic research at Harvard for the first time since 1966. Um, Leary and Alpert got kicked out in 63. Uh, Ralph was able to graduate. And uh, Walter Pankey continued till 1966. So at Harvard, we were able to start with MDMA for advanced stage cancer patients with anxiety. We've also been able to bring back research with LSD. And we have a study with LSD in Switzerland. It's going to be the first LSD-assisted psychotherapy study uh, in over 35 years. It's also with people who are dying. However, when we talk about working with the FDA, everything is pathologized. We have to be treating a disease. And so the existential changes that people go through when they accommodate to death, it's not clear that that maps out onto the normal anxiety and depression scales. So it's not clear that we can really have that move forward as our, our number one method, but it's important for helping people's anxieties and the culture that we want to help people who are dying with anxiety. And it may be that we can develop new measures that the FDA will accept. MDMA for PTSD is a different story. There's a standard measure for PTSD. It's translated into multiple languages around the world, and it's been used to approve Zoloft and Paxil for post-traumatic stress disorder. And MDMA is ideal for helping people no longer be fearful of fear. And we have finished our first study. It took us 22 years to start and finish. It cost a million dollars. The results are so good that it justifies a whole drug development effort. And, and for a long time, I talked about it as a $5 million five-year plan. But um, I did that for about 10 years. <laughs> and so now I've really, on the basis of our, our data, now I think realistically it's a $10 million 10-year plan. So we are thinking ahead for the next decade. 
And what we need to do over the next couple years is replicate our U.S. results in other studies so that we have studies ongoing right now in Switzerland and in Israel. In Israel, we're working with the former chief psychiatrist of the Israeli Defense Forces. We're trying to start a study in Jordan uh, with military psychiatrists in Jordan. So we're, we're sort of doing psychedelic diplomacy, and <laughs> we will have um, meetings between the Israel if we get permission in Jordan. And I've, I've met some political leaders in Jordan, and I believe that we have a very good chance of getting it approved there. We're just now starting a study, uh, or almost starting a study in Canada. We're in the final stages of negotiating with the Institutional Review Board. And in terms of breaking down stereotypes, what our hope for, and what's very possible in our Canadian study, is that we might be able to work with police with trauma from their jobs. There was um, a couple of years ago, I, I, have, I live in Boston, and the office is near Santa Cruz, and I was talking to Valerie on the phone, and she was saying that there was police all over the place, and that somebody had been murdered like around uh, half a block away from the MAPS office, and it was a pregnant woman who had been murdered. And I started thinking, this is really horrible, and, and how difficult it must be for a policeman to discover some... So I just rarely do I have sympathy for the police. <laughs> but um, in this particular time, I did. And then later that afternoon, I got a call from a psychologist from Vancouver, and he wanted to know about our study in Vancouver, which is with people with uh, Ibogaine in the treatment of uh, opiate addiction. And so we talked about it a while, and then he said, I have to tell you that I'm actually a police officer, and I work for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and I'm a psychologist. And, I, and then I thought, well, do police have PTSD? And he said, yes, they do. Loads of them. They don't want to talk about it. They're trained not to talk about it, but they do. So that's developed this. So I think this idea, again, that this is for the mainstream. This is for what can we offer, not to the you know, the hippies on the hog farm who we've drawn inspiration from, but also what do we offer to the politicians in Washington? What do we offer to their, the warriors in Iraq? How do we deal with the police? Trying to heal these splits. So that's what we're about. And that we are, for the next couple of years, going to be developing studies on MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, studies with the end of life, studies with addiction. And we're hoping that we will get to this point where we are able to negotiate with FDA to make it into a prescription medicine. Now, it's not gonna be like any prescription medicine. For my dissertation, I had the um, pleasure of sort of imagining myself as a police officer trying to construct a regulatory system that if I was in, I couldn't escape from. <laughs> and so I, I think I did that. So that I think psychedelic medicine is very easy to control because it's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. The drugs are never take-home drugs. It's not like the other psychedelics. You've got PTSD here, take this MDMA and go home. It's always under supervision. So there's not going to be drug diversion. And it's not something that we think every psychiatrist or psychologist should be able to prescribe. It will require special training. And I think it also should be done in special clinics, like we have kidney dialysis centers, we have methadone clinics, we have special places that are set up for this. In 1974 was the first hospice center in the United States. In 2004, there was over 3,000 of them. So over 30 years, things can really develop. So I'm imagining that we're about uh, 10 years to make these things medicine and then maybe another 20, 30 years for them to proliferate throughout society. And these clinics can also be a doorway to what Ralph was talking about in terms of more 
legalization for personal use. I think like you have to get a driver's license and you have to show that you can drive with somebody in the car and they decide you've done okay. I think you go to these clinics, they start out with the patients, then over years they'll expand to the family of the patients and then there'll be sites of initiation. I think what we lack in our culture is sort of these initiatory experiences. That, that's why our work at Burning Man at Boom with the psychedelic emergencies is so important because people are gravitating to these initiatory experiences and there are inevitable problems. So we need to both respond to the social problems in order for the backlash not to develop and we also need to respond to the concerns that people have about the issues about dying, about post-traumatic stress. So that with a certain amount of wisdom and caution, I think over the next 30, 40 years, we'll be able to envision uh, and live in, or some of us will not make it, it'll be our children or our children's children, we'll live in a much healthier society and I think psychedelics will play a major role for those who want it. I think we should also acknowledge that you don't need psychedelics, that um, many people can achieve all that they want in terms of love, in terms of spirituality, in terms of healing without psychedelics. But for those who are gravitating toward it, it can be tremendously helpful. So I'd like to also say that we can't do it alone. We would um, like to reach out. We have 1,500 members. Uh, one week, a couple of years ago, uh, one member sent us $250,000. And I also opened an envelope that had eight stamps from a drug war prisoner in jail for LSD. So I think we all just contribute what we can and, and we'll end up getting there. And uh, I look forward to talking to you more in questions and afterwards. So thank you very much. So we're gonna use that mic there. For those of you who wanna ask questions, you can line up and try to remember, think haiku, not Tolstoy, when you ask a question. I'm not sure that I have this right, but I noticed that when Albert Hoffman died this last year, there was a bunch of emails that went out, and one of them, I think it said, that he said that he got the dosage wrong. He thought that perhaps the dosage for LSD was supposed to be homeopathic. <laughs> and I think that this is a question for any of you to comment on. Well, I, I think that the uh, one of our um, key ideas in working with psychedelic emergencies is that difficult is not the same as bad. And if you look at the religious traditions, they always talk about the dark night of the soul. And that also often precedes the spiritual opening. So I think the difficult experience is inevitable. And I mean, it's something that happens in a therapeutic situation. You are open to the difficult experience and you try to work through it. But trying to avoid it, I think, is really not possible if you really want to get into the psyche. What, what Albert did say is that he thought the biggest area of unexplored research with LSD was low doses. So that I think that there is a lot to be learned in low doses, particularly like 20, 25 mil, mil, micrograms as a stimulant, there's, um, as a pain reduction. There, there's a lot about low dosing that can be explored. But then you get more towards traditional pharmaceutical medicine in that these are daily doses. Ibogaine, for example, was a legal prescription medicine in France as a stimulant in low doses. So the dose makes an enormous difference. But I think that Albert felt the dose that he 
was exposed to, the sort of um, dose where he thought he was dying on his initial trip, that, that that was part of this process that he ended up learning from and that he wouldn't have, you know, wished to have avoided that in retrospect. Okay, next, go ahead. I was wondering, I've recently heard someone say that they are actually using LSD for returning soldiers, that they really are using it in therapy and it's part of their health care plan. Does anyone no. know about that? No, I mean, there's some rumors that we like to um, squelch, and there's other rumors that we don't try to stop. So the idea that the government is using psychedelics to help people is kind of a good thing to get in people's awareness, (laughs) but it's totally false. Um, And maybe one day it may be true. Uh, I mean, our MDMA study for post-traumatic stress has been mischaracterized in various media. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, but it's, it's really been mischaracterized as being the government is giving MDMA. The government did as much as they can to block us from starting the study. So, but I think that LSD also for post-traumatic stress disorder has an incredible history. There's a book, Shaviti, that we sell, the last person in the world that had the legal permission to use LSD, not in research, was a Dutch psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Bastians, into the 80s. And he worked with concentration camp survivors with LSD. And one of the patients was a noted author, an Israeli Holocaust writer. And so the book Shiviti is about the use of LSD therapy to help him deal with the consequences of being in the concentration camps. I think actually the use of MDMA in the treatment of PTSD is uh, potentially one of the biggest breakthroughs that could happen. And I think it's interesting. And I, I think I'd like to I agree with Rick that it's a good idea to, to spread those rumors that it could be done because PTSD in, in war veterans is a huge problem for the military. And I think that's a, you know, and the military is under a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, there's something like 70 to 80,000 uh, veterans suffering from PTSD. There's no known treatment for PTSD, or rather the therapy for it takes forever. It's like a lifetime commitment, and some people even that of regular sort of therapy. And uh, uh, and it's actually a kind of a scandal that they're, uh, you know, because they don't know how to deal with it. And they, there's even some reports that they're sending these people for, back into the front lines because they don't want to get involved in, in treating them at all. They like say they have a pre-existing emotional disorder, which is an incredibly unethical thing to do. So it's actually a good idea, I think, for us to put pressure on the military. And there's a, there's a remote chance. I don't know. I think it's... It's worth pursuing that the military will see, well, this could save them thousands and thousands of money in therapy, you see, and they might go for it on that basis. So anyway, well, well, in, spread in, the rumor. Yeah, In 2004, the Veterans Administration spent $4.3 billion on disability payments to over 215,000 vets with PTSD, most from Vietnam. $4.3 billion just in one year. So that's why the scandals that Ralph is talking about where they're trying to not diagnose people as PTSD because once they do and they get on the disability, it's enormously expensive. Now, our treatment is not cheap because in our the, the MDMA therapy process takes about four months. There's only three days that the drug is given, but there's over 80 hours of non-drug psychotherapy. So that's another reason why pharmaceutical industries are not interested. First off, it's off patent, but secondly, the drug is only given a few times. It's really heavily human capital intensive. But in the long term, it's tremendously cost effective. And there are some openings um, in the military, and if Obama gets elected, I think that there's gonna be 
a little bit more openness to this kind of approach. But I think it's, again, it has to be grounded in science. We have to show that we can actually help people, and then we have to show that it can sustain over time. Yeah, it has to be done by people who are specifically trained in that method, not just any psychiatrist or any doctor. And just for the record, the rumor does have some basis in reality in that we did treat two vets with MDMA in our flagship study in Charleston. It's probably where it got started, I would guess. Go ahead, next. Thank you. Do you have anything good to say about the more traditional drugs like Ritalin and all the antidepressants that are out there, or do you agree with <laughs> that it's just a money-making well, corporate... I, I'm I mean, a fan of drugs. Well, I'll just say quickly, and then Valerie will say it. That, that I think there's no such thing as a good drug or a bad drug. It's the relationship that we establish with the drug. Thalidomide, which causes horrible birth defects, is now used as a drug to treat leprosy and cancer. So I think there are some people for whom the traditional antidepressants do a lot of good, and they may not want to take the time, for example, to delve deeper into their issues. Maybe that's all that they need. So I think it's really, if it works for people, I don't think it's inherently escapist or anything like that. So for some people, it can be fine. Yeah, Where I'm struggling is about Ritalin does help some children with uh, uh, hyperactivity syndrome, but it is overprescribed. You know, just as an automatic to anybody who's hyperactive, it's ridiculous. I think what we're really what we're trying to do is expand the number of different options out there, and each thing might have its own place, and just that this deserves as much of a place as any of the other ones do. Yeah. Uh, let me just mention too that MAPS is nonprofit, and one of the problems with drugs is the perverse incentives of making money, and that sort of uh, mm. ruins many things. Money can be a toxic. A toxic drug in and of itself, mm. but anyway. Yeah, that's why question. if it's taken out of the free market thing and it put into a regulatory framework, then that motivation, you know, when England had a system through the National Health Service where registered addicts could get their heroin, they didn't have a heroin in the street problem. And you didn't have the problem of uh, contaminated uh, drugs being taken by people and being <coughs> toxically uh, poisoned by these um, I should just, just add, though, that in our study, people have failed on they have to have failed on an SSRI, and they have to have failed on a non-drug psychotherapy in order to get in the study. So we're working with treatment failures from all the traditional medicines mm. and therapies. And then if they're still on them because they provide some symptom control, they have to go off them in order to be in the study. And a lot of times mm. when people taper off their other medications, their symptoms get worse. We see that as a sign of healing, that they're now starting to get in a position where they're not suppressing their emotions, they're dealing with things. So there's often this intro process that can last months while they taper off their drugs where they're actually, in a way, getting worse, but they're getting ready to deal with the raw emotions. Go ahead, next. Uh, hi, my name is Elliot. I'm a psychologist here in the Bay Area. My question is about nonviolent civil disobedience. And I wondered if there's ever been a doctor or a psychologist who openly and voluntarily broke the law publicly in order to try and get the law undone? Well, I, I think we see that a lot with medical marijuana, but we don't really see that with psychedelics. And I think that it's not necessary with psychedelics because there are no laws that are blocking our path. 
Well, if the, I, as a doctor, gave oh, okay. one of my clients yes, okay. ecstasy or LSD, yes, okay. yes. and the patient told my licensing board, my own guess is my yeah. licensing board would not be overthrilled. Yeah, yes, I'm sorry. What, what I meant to say is that the, the process of making psychedelics into a medicine is open door at the FDA, in contrast to medical marijuana, where the government, through the Nationalist on Drug Abuse, has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana, and they will not let us use their monopolized supply of marijuana for research. So we've been trying to buy 10 grams of marijuana for over five years for vaporizer research, and we can't get 10 grams. Everybody here, I bet, could get 10 grams quicker than we could. Um, but, but in terms of this civil disobedience, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a high price to pay, and the answer will be, until it's through the FDA, you know, we, we have this process to evaluate medicines in our society, so I don't think it would accomplish that much, but there are a fair number of underground psychedelic therapists who are doing great work at great risk, but they're just not raising their hands to say, I want to be an example. Yeah, uh, civil disobedience is a very private matter, you know. Remember the story of Emerson meeting Thoreau, and Thoreau was already in jail for civil disobedience, and Emerson said to him, Thoreau, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau said to him, Emerson, what are you doing out there? <laughs> oh, okay, next question. Um, hello, my name is Daniel. I've got a question about uh, treatment for eating disorders. Um, I uh, actually have two friends that have died of uh, eating disorders. And uh, my understanding um, from talking to uh, doctors is that there's often an um, uh, addictionological aspect uh, to those disorders. Do you know of anybody who's done research using um, these drugs for um, patients with eating disorders? Well. No, there's no research that's been done. Um, but there are various people that we have come into contact with that have used MDMA in particular for eating disorders. Because one of the aspects of MDMA, one of the key aspects, is a sense of self-acceptance. And I think people with eating disorders do not accept uh, their body image. There's this internal struggle. So I think, um, in fact, this one woman who had worked with um, MDMA with eating disorders was uh, doing wrote a book about it, and she had a major struggle with her editors about whether she could put the portion about MDMA in her book as a, this was a guideline for younger people about how to deal with eating disorders, and eventually it was edited out. But I think that MDMA does have a role. The, the, the challenge is that we have limited resources, so we, we have to pick those patient populations that we think are most likely to generate political support, financial support, and make it through the FDA. So that's where we've prioritized post-traumatic stress disorder and end-of-life issues. But I but, would say basically that eating disorders are, fall in the category of obsessive and compulsive disorders, and addictions is also a subcategory of obsessive-compulsive disorders in general. And they're, all of them, addictions, com obsessions, compulsions, are consciousness-contracting, fixated, repetitive, seeking of the same satisfaction or intake or the same kind of behavior, compulsive behavior as well. So uh, the use of consciousness expanding substances in a therapeutic context for dealing with those is absolutely indicated. And there are studies, for example, psilocybin using uh, OCSD. And there are studies of, uh, at the conference on ayahuasca we had, there was a woman who reported on 
treatment of a lifelong 30-year-old eating disorder through ayahuasca, which is kind of a paradox. Ayahuasca makes you throw up, you know? And so she was like, well, I've tried everything else and nothing has worked. And she did fine. It was, had a, its root in a childhood trauma. And, um, you know, she could have potentially have found that in another way, but that's the way she found it. But it's when the substances are used as an adjunct, as an amplifier of a therapeutic process. Okay, next question. Hi, I have a question, and I'd like to explain why I wanted to ask it. So the question is regard, regarding the use of MDA versus other psychotropic medicines. And the reason I'm asking the question is that there was a time in the early 70s to the late 70s and early 80s where psychedelics changed, where the street dosage really changed a lot. But if you find MDA in the street versus psychedelic mushrooms or some other products that are more calculable, if that's the right word, I think they're safer. And there might be some misunderstanding of, you know, we're here to support you and what you're doing, but there might be some misunderstanding of people wanting to use these things on their own. So my question is, can you discuss a little bit about, you know, the benefits and contradictions of using something natural that's more uh, easily under, understood versus something that's uh, chemical-based that can be misdosed very easily? Well, um, I, I would say there's pros and cons on both sides of those. The shamanic traditions, which go back thousands of years, of course, use psychoactive plants or mushrooms and, or extracts from them. And there's something to be said for that. What's the main thing to be said for them is that they, they have proven safety and reliability. You know, if these things, these people, indigenous people that use these things, they're not stupid. And if, if something is really toxic and damaging in the long range, they won't continue to use it. So we have that, and that's something you don't know if you have a new drug that's been developed. Um, and uh, there's going to be a period of time when you know, people have to find out and do the research, what are the safety factors involved in it, and some may fall by the wayside. So, uh, on the other hand, the advantage of the chemical substances, especially if they're very closely allied to the, uh, to the uh, plant substances, and if you can show that the functionally they have the same or similar kind of an effect, uh, then there are advantages like accessibility and, uh, you know, if people wanted to do a study with psilocybin mushroom, it would be hard to get together enough mushrooms to do a controlled study, but you could do psilocybin and you could do a very placebo-controlled study, so. Um, I, I would say that the, the traditional psychedelics like LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, all these things, they're physiologically safer than MDMA but psychologically riskier. That MDMA, people can negotiate with it, it doesn't take your ego apart, it's a gentler, shorter experience. So that we have that dichotomy also. But I think that, for example, we had one donor that was concerned about the impurities of ecstasy, and so he, Bob Wallace, ended up donating about $100,000, and we ended up testing 800 pills in association with Arrowhead and Dansafe. And about, these are pills now that people thought they had questions with, what were they? But over half of them were bogus. And the, a lot of the others were mixed with other things, had some amount of MDMA. So that it is an issue, but that's where we get back to the drug war. The drug war is designed to maximize harm for the people that ignore the law. It's a harm maximization, not a harm minimization. And that's distinct from what we're trying to do in a therapeutic sense. 
so that we're able to, at least in our therapeutic context, work with the purest drugs in the world that are acceptable to FDA. But I think this, this distinction between psychological risks and physiological risks is something that's also to be paying attention to, that LSD doesn't hurt your chromosomes despite all of the claims to that, so it doesn't hurt your brain. But MDMA can cause increase in blood pressure. It can, in some instances, be problematic. People can dance all night and overheat where that never happens with LSD. Yeah, it's interesting that MDMA, unlike any other psychedelic drug, has already been incorporated into the culture in a huge scale. There are probably millions and millions of users of MDMA in the, known as ecstasy in the context of these rave dance parties. And, uh, you know, f f and we know the numbers because we know the numbers of drugs that are being seized, and that's only a small percentage of those that are being used. And there's not corpses in the street, and there's not people dying from them. The drug is relatively, compared to alcohol, certainly, and uh, many other drugs, and heroin and cocaine, comparatively safe. Of course, then it's complicated by the fact that often the drugs, the street drugs are mixed and toxic with all kinds of other things. So, but it's very interesting because MDMA basically, I always remember when I was working with somebody who, in, in therapy, who had already experienced LSD. And when the effect started, he looked around and he said, this is interesting. Everything looks just the same, which is, you wouldn't ever say if somebody's taking psychedelics, you see, you see, it looks completely different. Everything looks just the same, but I feel completely differently about it. See, that's the key. The expansion of awareness is only on the emotional band. That enables people to look at these really painful, traumatic experiences that they've had and have a degree of empathy for themselves that they didn't have at the time. That's what trauma means. You don't have empathy for yourself. Yeah, another way to see this distinction is I, I had the um, good fortune to be with Albert Hoffman the first time he took MDMA um, at Esalen. And what he said after he sort of came onto it fully was he said, finally, something I can do with my wife. <laughs> so we only have time for one more question or two quick ones, I'm afraid. Right. So, Or maybe we can be quick um, with our answers if you yeah. can let everybody. Yeah. So I'd like to begin by saying that, um, that I have used psychedelics in my life and I've been deeply uh, positively influenced by them, so I'm very sympathetic toward the legalization of psychedelics and the clinical use of psychedelics. The question I want to ask you is kind of in the spirit of pioneers, which is systemic thinking. In the United States, there is a relationship between the dominant power structure and the psychotherapy profession that runs along the idea of we break them and you fix them. And so there's a sort of an accommodation, a kind of a detente of mutual accommodation. If you don't bust our game, we won't bust your game. But it's not necessarily good for the whole society. So the question I want to ask you is, how comfortable are you with your, if you discover that you can cure post-traumatic uh, stress with uh, MDMA, how comfortable are you with those troops being sent back into combat? They're already being given Prozac, so I like the work that you're doing, and also it seems to me it's very fragile in the sense that it can easily be redirected to purposes other than those that you intend. So I wish you would address yourself to that issue. Well, well you started by saying if we prove it 
that MDMA can help with PTSD, are we concerned about how it might be misused? So first off, we have proven it. Now, we've only proven it in 21 subjects in our first study, but I believe we've proven it, and now we have to prove it in 600 or so. Secondly, your same concerns could be expressed about battlefield physicians. How do you feel about saving somebody's life who's been wounded in war? Will they then go back into battle? So I think that there's a humanitarian aspect to this and a larger social aspect. And I think we need to recognize that the decision on war is a collective social decision, and we need to really work on that level to try to make there be less war. But when it comes down to the individual warrior, I think we have a humanitarian uh, responsibility to assist them. And the idea that somebody will get over their trauma and then will become like a heartless killer because they know that they can somehow or other take MDMA every time they worry about what they did, I, I don't think that that's the way it will work. I think, in fact, the, the, the two veterans that we've worked with, I think they end up being more empowered to speak out about the horrors of war. And so I'm more concerned about how we work with the, the sort of dominant culture that is sort of training our military not to feel at all. And there are actually drugs that are more likely candidates for that kind of treatment, and that's amphetamines. And in fact, there's evidence that's been published that the whole Nazi military regime was heavily involved in amphetamine use because the amphetamine speed effect, like harder drive, driving hard performance, endurance like that, re regardless of consequences, fits very much with this, uh, uh, it's a focused thing, it's a narrow thing, it's not consciousness expanding. And one further thing in relationship to the point that the gentleman brought up was that uh, MDMA is very difficult to abuse. I mean, you can abuse it by taking too much of it too often. But uh, the military, one of the first uses of psychedelics, including LSD, was by the military for brainwashing and intelligence and espionage and surreptitious use, and they did a great deal of harm uh, and really malignant uh, things. But that's, that's what happens. And the individual responsibility of the individual healer is to, to the per person that you're healing or, or trying to treat, uh, regardless of the situation. Thank you very much. Thank you.